Fantastic. Um, we are in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11 today, page 1034, if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you. You know, in Revelation, we're talking about the big story, right? The grand story, everything from creation all the way to the second coming of Christ. And obviously, we are trying to understand what our part is in that story as well. Our next series, mini-series, during spring break will be very practical. We're going to talk about everyday struggles. Things like, I know you don't deal with these things, but I do. Anger, anxiety, forgiving people. So, very common uh, struggles for all of us. That'll be the next series starting in just a couple of weeks. Today, in Revelation chapter 11. And uh, I've entitled the message, Breaking the Code, because I think this chapter is about code breaking. Maybe you remember that during uh, World War II, the, the Nazis, they had a machine called the Enigma machine, and with that machine they would send coded messages to other units of the, of the German military and Navy. And um, the British were trying to understand what was being uh, messaged through that machine. They, they formed a, a cryptography team, and on that team they placed a man by the name of Alan Turing, a brilliant mathematician. And he made a machine called, that he called Christopher, and with that machine was actually able to decode Enigma. And of course, that gave the British an unusual advantage. If you like deciphering messages, if you like breaking codes, if you like working through symbolic, pa- uh, symbolic messages, well, this is the passage for you. <laughs> When we interpret this passage, we have to walk with an extra measure of humility. Why? Most interpreters of Scripture consider it to be the most difficult text in all of Scripture to interpret. So we walk with humility. But at the same time, we ask the Holy Spirit to instruct us. Even within particular schools of interpretation, you'll find that people come to different conclusions on different points. So we're going to use the best interpretive methods, and above all, we're going to value the biblical context. We're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we will focus on the key symbols, the major themes. And so no matter where you might land in your interpretation of this passage, I pray that what we talk about will be core to what Scripture teaches. And I believe you will agree at the end of the message. Almost all of the symbols and images come right out of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, when he entrusts this vision to the Apostle John, he uses symbols, images that John will readily understand, and also the church that he is writing to in the first century. So I, I do believe that it is, in a sense, a coded message, an encrypted message for the early church, persecuted, living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, a message that the Romans would not easily understand. Maybe you remember from last weekend, Pastor James was talking about a, a political cartoon. And in the cartoon, there were politicians and their noses were growing longer. And he asked the question, okay, how would we interpret that? Well, if we know anything about the story of Pinocchio, we would look at that image or that design and say, oh, the artist is trying to communicate that the politicians are lying, Right? Now, unfortunately, I've noticed that uh, Pastor James's nose this week has been growing. So, <laughs> it's a matter of prayer. 
I do believe that if we work to understand the message, if we listen carefully to the word of God, that we will be encouraged, that we will be empowered and inspired to live faithfully to Jesus right to the end of time. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, again, we just thank you that you have gifted us with your word. We thank you for the visions that you entrusted to the Apostle John. We thank you that you have preserved your word. We thank you that we are here today and that we can read it. And we ask that your Holy Spirit guide us as we seek to understand the message of this text and then know how to apply it to our lives in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. One uh, more word of introduction before we dive into the text. Uh, This passage is found within a larger section of Revelation, starting in chapter 8, going all the way to the end of chapter 11. It's this section that focuses on the seven trumpets. Chapters 10 and 11, they're a kind of interlude in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. You'll remember that there was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, chapter 7. And so the interlude here in chapters 10 and 11, it kind of parallels chapter 7. In chapter 7, we saw two pictures of the people of God, the 144,000 and the multi-ethnic multitude worshiping God. Here in chapter 11, again, we see two pictures of God's people, the temple and two witnesses. We'll try to understand what that means in a minute. In chapter 10... John, he's ordered to take the scroll, the scroll that Jesus has opened. Jesus has broken the seven seals of the scroll. He is to eat it. And then at the end of chapter 10, we read that he is to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so symbolically, John has digested God's plans of um, redemption, God's revelation, his plans of redemption and judgment. And the message that he now carries, having digested the word, well, it's of significance for all peoples. So having said that by way of introduction, let's get into Revelation chapter 11. And uh, I would encourage you to have a piece of paper and, you know, there are pencils in the seat backs to write down to stay focused on the text because there's just a lot to digest here. Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 11 verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So let's begin with the identity code in these first three verses. John, he's given a measuring rod, a surveyor's rule. And he's instructed to measure the temple of God. This picture, it comes from the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. John must measure not only the temple and the altar, but also the people who worship there. Now, the first symbol that we want to focus on is the temple. What is meant by it? Some interpreters, when they look at this passage, they believe that these events have already, or sorry, these events, they they happen after the rapture of the church, and so they believe that God's people are no longer present. For them, the holy city, it refers to the earthly Jerusalem. They believe that the temple mentioned here is actually the temple that will be rebuilt during the time of the revelation, uh, of the great tribulation, a seven-year period. 
The two witnesses that are mentioned uh, throughout the text, they understand them to be two actual individuals, Moses and Elijah, who will reappear at the end of history to witness to the Jewish people. The 42 months that are mentioned here, the 1,260 days, they refer to the latter half of the tribulation period, during which the Antichrist will make war on God's people. That is a very literal interpretation of the passage, and I don't want to minimize that school of interpretation, but I believe that what is being communicated here is being communicated in a more symbolic fashion. And so if you hold to that school of interpretation, I do not minimize you in any way. I would just ask that you listen for what God might say to you through the text today. I believe this passage is highly symbolic because of the nature of Revelation, all of the symbols that we have been working through, and also the context here within the seven trumpets. John, he received the visions of Revelation in around 96 A.D., At that time, the the earthly temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. I believe the temple, the altar, and the outer court, they point to something beyond themselves. What is it? The Greek term that's used for temple here, neus, it refers to the temple proper, so where God was believed to dwell, the, the holy of holies. That term is used for God's people in the New Testament. It's used by Paul and Peter as a symbol for the church. For example, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. Another example, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself uses this symbol, the temple, to describe the church in Revelation chapter 3. He refers to the church in Philadelphia as the temple. All of this suggests that the temple language here symbolizes the church. Why is John asked to measure the temple? In Zechariah chapter 2, a man appears to measure Jerusalem, and the Lord says to him, For I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the measuring of the temple and the measuring of those who worship there, it determines who actually belongs to God, who will persevere through the time of judgments. In chapter 7, God's people, you'll remember, they're sealed before the last seal is broken. Here, God's people, they're measured, they're protected before the last trumpet sounds. God knows who are his. His hand of protection is on them. So, those who worship there, they belong to God. That's the first marker of the identity code. They belong to God. John is instructed to not measure what is outside the temple, not measure the court outside the temple, to leave that out, to exclude it. The court outside the temple is the court of the Gentiles. It symbolizes pagan, ungodly, uh, worldly systems opposed to God. The holy city will be given over to the nations. 
and they will trample the city for 42 months. We'll come back to that in just a minute, what that trampling means, but 42 months of trampling. Why 42? You see 42 months in the text, you see 1,260 days in the text. 1,260, 42 times 30. Sometimes you'll read in Revelation or the book of, Rev, uh, of Daniel a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half year period, 42 months. What does 42 symbolize in Scripture? Well, in, in 1 Kings, we see that when Elijah prophesied, when he called the nation to repentance, 42 months was the time that it didn't rain. 42 months was the length of time that there was tremendous suffering among the Jewish people when the Syrian despot Antiochus Epiphanes was oppressing the Jewish people. That was from 167 B.C. to 164 B.C. 42 months is the time that the dragon goes after the woman in Revelation 12, the woman that, who has given birth to the Messiah. Robert Mounts writes, it became, 42, it became a standard symbol for that limited period of time during which evil would be allowed free reign. I don't agree with the free reign comment because I believe that God is sovereign over all things. But it is a time when the church is persecuted, when the church suffers. 42 months is the time of the trampling of the holy city. I believe that holy city here refers to the true church. It's being trampled from the time of Jesus' first coming to his second coming. But the church is sealed from God's wrath. It is protected. It is sustained by God. But even though it is sustained and protected by God, the church does suffer throughout history. It suffers when it comes under the pressure of those opposed to God. Now, 42, the suffering is not forever. God limits the time of suffering. According to verse 3, 42 months is also the time period that two witnesses clothed in sackcloth are preaching a message of repentance. Sackcloth, it's a, it's a mourning garment. It, it symbolizes repentance. So these witnesses, they not only live a life of repentance, they call people to repentance. They prophesy while the holy city is being trampled, the church is being trampled, while the beast wields authority over God's people. So those who worship there are repentant before God. That's another mark of the true church. The church belongs to God. It is also a repentant people, and they call others to repentance. They're constantly turning from idolatry to new life in Jesus. The truth of the good news, however, for many, is not good news. They oppose the preaching, the proclamation of the good news. They are hostile towards the messengers that carry the message of good news in Jesus. And we'll see more about that in a few minutes. Who are the two witnesses? Well, again, they symbolize God's people and their mission in the world. That is to be a prophetic witness to Jesus. And this will become clear as we walk through the following verses. Revelation 19, verse 10, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, two witnesses are needed to confirm that something is true. Jesus also refers to two witnesses needed to confirm testimony. The testimony of two is true. So the nature of their prophetic witness, it will become clear as we walk through the following verses. For now, those who worship there, they give prophetic testimony, prophetic witness to Jesus. In summary, the identity code of God's people is this. They belong to God. They walk in repentance and call others to repentance. They give prophetic witness 
to Jesus. They are the ones who call the nations to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. How does that happen? Well, the holy city is being trampled. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. There's a lot there. The people who worship there in the temple, they have a mission code. What is the mission code? The two witnesses in the text, as the scripture says, are the two olive trees. Where does that image come from? It comes from the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah, two olive trees, they symbol two anointed leaders. A royal leader who is called to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel, and a high priest who is to lead worship in the temple, Joshua. Joshua and Zerubbabel, they are to minister in a city that has been trampled by the Gentiles. The two witnesses in Revelation 11, they are also two lampstands. You'll remember that the church is referred to as a lampstand in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. The church bears light to Jesus in the world. In Zechariah, the two olive trees are given this word, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the message in Zechariah is that there's just an abundance of spirit olive oil for the two anointed ones. Here in Revelation 11, we could say that the two lampstands, the two witnesses, the two olive trees are to burn brightly with the fire of God. Two witnesses declaring the truth of God unabashedly. A picture of the true church under pressure in the world. Those who worship there, they witness in the Spirit's power. That's a key mark of the mission code. They witness in the Spirit's power. The two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands are a vivid picture of all who have been redeemed by the Lamb of God, all who have been called to serve as a prophetic witness in the world. It reminds us of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As the two witnesses fulfill their prophetic role, fire from their mouths consumes those who try to harm them. Wouldn't that be great if someone tried to harm us or opposed us, and as we spoke, fire would just... Maybe not. John is not suggesting that the church is going to literally call down fire on its enemies. I think we need to go back to the book of Jeremiah. Look at what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah 5.14, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth of fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So the prophetic word of the two witnesses, what does it do? It convicts. The two witnesses, they have the power to shut the sky like Elijah. You'll remember that Elijah, he prayed, and it did not rain for 42 months. They also have the power to turn water into blood like Moses. The plagues that afflicted the people of Egypt it happened as Moses spoke things out. So Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, those two men are in view here. They are the two great representatives of Old Testament revelation. We could say that the two olive trees, the two lampstands, the two witnesses, they ex- exercise the same prophetic role as Moses and Elijah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, as they minister under the empowerment of the same spirit. Those who worship there, they witness by signs. That happened through Moses and Elijah. That is to happen through the church today. Listen to the words of Jesus, Mark 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed their message by accompanying signs. In Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses, they're invincible until their mission is completed. God determines when their mission is completed in his sovereignty. When their mission is accomplished, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and he's given permission to conquer them, to kill them. The true enemy of the church is the beast. This battle is described in much greater detail in chapters 13 and 17. For now, let's remember Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The beast kills the the witnesses through martyrdom. The Greek word for witness is martus. And from that word, we get our word martyr. Those who worship there, they witness by suffering, by suffering. Their testimony is that of Paul, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Signs and suffering. The two marks of true witnesses to Jesus in the age prior to Jesus' coming. If we're going to follow Jesus, we do need to count the cost. Here we see that the bodies of the two witnesses, they lie in the open street, in the wide open street. That's the most shameful treatment imaginable imaginable for people who have died in the ancient world. In the ancient world, people were buried on the same day. Here they're refused burial, while those who oppose God, they party in the streets. A stark contrast to the two witnesses dressed in sackcloth of repentance. Here, the, those who oppose God, they rejoice over the apparent demise of the church. They believe that the truth of God has actually been silenced. Where does this happen? In the text, it says it happens in the great city. If we read through the book of Revelation, the great city is most often referred to as Babylon. That's used as a euphemism, a substitute for Rome. It's code language. 
It appears that the symbol here has even broader application. Here it applies also to earthly, worldly Jerusalem, contrasted with the new Jerusalem, the holy city. In verse 8, the great city is called symbolically Sodom and Egypt. Why? The great city is called Sodom because Sodom symbolizes immorality, rebellion against God. This great city is called Egypt because Egypt symbolizes the persecution of God's people, the the oppression of God's people. Both Sodom and Egypt are applied to the earthly city of Jerusalem. Why? Because it persecuted and martyred the prophets. Because it rejected and crucified the Messiah. We can say, based on what we see in this text, that this great city actually symbolizes all cities of the world. All cities of the world, like Babylon and Sodom and, you know, the cities of Egypt, earthly Jerusalem, all cities where the message of Jesus Christ is opposed, where it's rejected, and God's faithful witnesses come under pressure, under persecution, and some are martyred. So the ministry of the two witnesses, it mirrors the ministry of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. There's prophetic testimony given in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are signs and wonders, but at the same time that provokes satanic opposition and persecution and for many death in the great city. As I read through this text this week, I asked myself a question. Maybe you are asking yourself this question as well. Why would the one seated on the throne, the one who has power over all things, why would he allow this to happen? He's more powerful than the beast. Why does Jesus allow the one that he has overcome already to persecute and kill his witnesses? Let me share with you a picture From my own experience last week, I was running on a peninsula, and at the end of the peninsula, there was a a rugged wooden cross. And so if I would run toward that cross in the late afternoon, the sun would be shining on the cross and on me. And as I made that run toward the course, as I stayed the course toward the cross, the thought that came to me, you know, if I am dying to myself, if I'm actually taking up my cross, the the light of Jesus shines more brightly through me. That's a scriptural truth. We're to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. That's the paradox of the cross. Jesus, he wins when he appears to be defeated by the enemy. Jesus, he overcomes the enemy when he lets the enemy overcome him. One author wrote, when death stung Jesus Christ, it stung itself to death. In the same way, the church wins when it appears that Satan has conquered. How is that possible? Well, we need to keep on reading. And here's where it gets exciting. In verses 11 through 13, here we discover the life code. The life code. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Breath of life from God entered them. That language comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 37. So God is breathing life into his witnesses. 
The church is being vindicated through resurrection. It cannot be destroyed by the beast. This is rapture time. Come up here is the voice that's heard calling from heaven. Just as Elijah was taken to heaven, just as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, so the church rises and is taken to heaven in a cloud. Revelation 1.7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus coming for his bride, the church, rescuing it from the great city and welcoming it into the new city of God. The church is resurrected to eternal life. That's the first marker of the life code. Now, did you notice that the resurrection of God's people, it coincides with the great earthquake? And what happens? We read that one-tenth of the city is flattened. We read that 7,000 die. But the rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. What does it mean? This past week, Katherine Johnson passed away. Maybe some of you have watched the movie Hidden Figures. Her her story is depicted in that uh, movie. She lived uh, in the 1960s. She was a very gifted mathematician. Um, But she and many other African-American women, they uh, were unseen by the public. They did their work for NASA. She was instrumental in helping John Glenn go into orbit. It's a fascinating movie. Only 60 years ago, mathematicians doing math longhand with a chalkboard. It's hard to imagine But that's the way it was. These African-American women were not seen, but they did work that was critical for the space program to move forward. The hidden figures. Who are the hidden figures of history? What are they doing? The numbers in verse 13, they reveal their work, the work of God's hidden figures in history. Now pay careful attention. You see in Revelation 11, 13, one-tenth of the great city is flattened, 7,000 die, right? In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, one-tenth of the city is saved, nine-tenths falls. Amos chapter 5, verse 3, in a city of 1,000, only 100 are saved, 900 fall. In 1 Kings 19, 7,000, that's the number of the faithful remnant that's spared judgment. In all three cases, the overwhelming majority falls, is judged. What happens here in Revelation chapter 11? Well, Jesus, he reverses the math. Only one-tenth falls. Nine-tenths is saved. Only 7,000 die. The rest are saved. The reversal is due to the faithful witness of God's people, the faithful witness of the two olive trees, the two lampstands, the two witnesses who witnessed to Jesus, the church. What is the outcome of the witness of the hidden figures throughout world history, the work of anonymous disciples around the world? What is the outcome? Well, the witnesses may die as they witness, but a multitude will repent and be redeemed. A multitude repents and is redeemed. That is referred to, I counted 12 times in the book of Revelation. 
And we see this happening around the world today, even as we worship and pray today. It's happening in places where the church is persecuted, in Iran and Laos and Myanmar, parts of China. It's happening around the world. Let me share just one example. A friend of mine, I'll call him PK. After the Vietnam War, he was imprisoned in Laos, his native country. Why was he imprisoned? He was imprisoned because he served as a spy for the Americans. He was put in a concentration camp. And miraculously, he escaped from this camp, fled to Thailand, lived there as a refugee, and then came to the United States. In the United States, he came to faith. Now following his new master, he felt called to go back to his own people in Laos, the Kamu people. The overwhelming majority did not know Jesus. Over the last number of decades, he's been going back to Laos, witnessing to Jesus, and as he's done that, he has been imprisoned multiple times. He has been imprisoned, and many of the people that he has led to faith have been imprisoned. But while he has been imprisoned and others have been imprisoned, the church has been growing exponentially. You see, the hidden figures of God, those who faithfully witness to Jesus, the work of the kingdom, it can happen no matter how oppressive the regime might be. We've been praying for Iran. So much has happened in Iran over the last number of decades. But today, even though the regime in Iran may oppose the church, the fastest growing church in the world today is, in, is found in Iran. Pastor Isaiah was here a number of months ago. Pastor Isaiah from Myanmar. Just last year, uh, through him and others working with him, one and a half thousand Buddhists have come to faith in Myanmar. So even though our spiritual enemy, Satan, may be against us, even though governments may oppose the growth of the church, God will continue to build his church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so I believe this passage here, Revelation chapter 11, it's written in coded language, but it's written to encourage a persecuted, oppressed church in the first century living under the Roman Empire. And the word is, continue to be faithful. You belong to God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Walk in repentance, walk in humility before God, call others to repentance, give prophetic witness, because as you do that, you will be empowered by the Spirit, you will witness by signs and by suffering, Jesus will be glorified, and you live with the hope that you will be resurrected to eternal life, and many will come to faith in Jesus as you live for him. So it's a message of great hope for the early church. And I pray that you are encouraged by God's word today as well. May we be those hidden figures in Canada. Amen. Witnessing to Jesus, come what may. Let's stand for prayer. And then we're going to go into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. And, Lord, I just pray that what is of you, your truth, truth, would remain with your people to encourage them, to inspire them, to equip them to live for you in this day. We depend on you, O Lord. You've gifted us with life. You've gifted us with health. 
You've gifted us with so much. Most of all, you've sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us. May we follow your leading, Jesus, wherever we may go this week. And may we witness faithfully to you, knowing that your strong hand is on us, that you're always with us, that you will never leave us, and that you're present to speak with us, to speak through us, and to work wonders through us as we trust you. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.